0: With a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George, welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: It's the Friday edition, which means we have the panel with Nathan Gita on the way at the bottom of the hour. Uh, Usually we start Friday's show with Ram and Stag, the podcast, uh, but that's not available this week, so instead we will broadcast, uh, rebroadcast, yesterday morning's front burner from CBC News.
2: we talked about on the show on Tuesday, the big headline out of Monday's liberal budget was money for a national childcare program. It's something that lots and lots of people in this country have been calling for for decades, like I'm talking about since 1970, when Canada's Royal Commission on the Status of Women recommended it. Since then, political parties and governments have studied it, proposed it, even gotten close a few times, only for things to fall apart. I'm Jamie Poisson, and today, how we got here, and is this really the moment? I'm speaking with someone who is very hopeful that it will be, Martha Friendly, Executive Director of the Child Care Resource and Research Unit. Hi, Martha. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Jamie. I'm thrilled. Uh, so, So I saw you on Twitter Monday night. You said that you were popping some champagne that That Monday's (laughs) announcement was really emotional for you, hey?
3: Yes. uh, Somebody had emailed me saying, are you tearing up? And I
2: said, Mm -hmm. actually, it's more popping champagne. But there was some tearing up, I have to say. Okay. Well, I I want to talk to you more about Monday later on. But first, I I really want to understand today how we got here. Uh, So I know that you've been active in this movement for national childcare in Canada since the early days, like the late 1970s. And And you were, of course, watching when in 1984, the liberal government of Pierre Elliott Trudeau formed this task force on child care to look into the issue.
4: Women's movement leaders are now targeting daycare. They seem to be saying they want it all now. They will stop at nothing short of a nationwide universal daycare system across this country.
5: Here's the dilemma. They want good childcare at reasonable rates. Daycare workers are already underpaid, yet the cost of daycare is pushing family budgets to their limits.
2: Yes. At the time, how hopeful were you that that was actually going to lead to a universal childcare program in Canada?
3: Oh, I remember being extremely hopeful. It was an incredibly thorough piece of work. It, if you read it now, it actually it, it covers a lot of the issues that we're still talking about, like parental leave, for example. And um, it actually recommended a program of universal child care that would build up over time. And I guess I was more naive at the time. I thought if there was a task force on something and it was good, it would become a reality.
2: And so at this time, when, when this report was finally released from the task force, uh, Trudeau Sr., he, he wasn't the prime minister anymore, right? And it was conservative. Yeah. Anymore. Brian Mulroney, what did he do with the recommendations? The recommendations were never used. The Mulroney government let the task force
3: finish its work and published a report. It was actually on International Women's Day 1986.
6: The task force found the country's child care system in a state of crisis. There are 2 million children with working parents in Canada. Only 150,000 have access to licensed child care. We think that this is the key social issue of the
5: decade. Jack London is a member of the task force. We think the federal government, in its role as the national government, ought to take the bull by the horns and deal with the problem and get the ball rolling. And to do that, we say, put up the money. But
3: what the Mulroney government did was they set up their own task force and um, it basically did not recommend publicly funded universal child care there was some public funding that wasn't really a commitment to universality most of the people in the child care community were not in favor of this particular legislation passing come and listen for the families of and
5: for the children of Canada
4: The government has proposed a child care strategy but more than half the money will be spent in tax breaks. And to this group, that's not
7: good enough.
3: Women are not going to go back to being barefoot and pregnant in their kitchens. So where it ended was that um, it, um, there was the federal election was called in 1988, just at the time that the bill moved into the Senate. It was the day that it moved into the Senate, and
2: so it died on the order paper, and it never came back. So, so essentially what you're saying is that even this Mulrooney version of a childcare program doesn't come to pass. And then I, I believe it's 1993 then. Um, there is an election and the Christian liberals uh, put child care on the national agenda again. But in their campaign, they don't promise universal child care, right? But they do pledge to expand it and pump a bunch of money into it. The Red Book promised 150,000
4: new daycare spaces and more money.
8: So you can come with this book in front of me every week after I'm the prime minister. And say, so where are you in your promises, Mr. Chrétien?
4: Yes,
3: that's Talks exactly right, Jamie. Yeah. Talks to me about what happened then. What happened there was is that um, Chrétien inc- included in that item a requirement that economic growth would have to reach 3% before they would actually act on it. And it didn't. So they didn't act on it. But it was one more instance where it came onto the national agenda and what was promised didn't actually happen.
2: Right. And and talking about that growth, you know, I wonder if it's worth noting the political and economic climate at the time, right? You know, I remember around this time, you know, 93, 94, Canada's big debt versus the size of our economy was this sort of global embarrassment. The Wall Street Journal called us a banana republic. Exactly. Um, Yes. You know, I, I know a couple of agencies lowered our credit rating, you know, making loans more expensive. The mood was very much in need for less Government spending a, a time of austerity.
4: Despite earlier predictions, the new figures show the problem is much larger than many people anticipated.
5: The country is in debt up to its eyeballs, said Martin. The government aims to reduce the deficit to three percent of GDP. We have never
0: equivocated. It is a target we will meet, come hell or high water.
2: I want to move Martha to 1997, um, because this is the year that Quebec does something massive in terms of childcare. And, and what did they introduce?:
3: I mean, essentially, what they did was set out to make establish universal child care in Quebec. And they set a parent fee, which was originally $5 a day. And, of course, the government money paid the rest of it.
4: Mm-hmm. To pay for it, the government's redirected funds from about 20 different family programs. The government says it's putting that money to better use. They're part of the economic chain, if you want, uh, of our society, in the sense that if we want the parents to be comfortable in the workplace, they have to be comfortable with their kids being secure and and well-supported and uh, well-developed.
2: You know, we talked just now about an atmosphere of austerity, uh, certainly at the national level. Why was Quebec different? What were the factors in Quebec at the time that allowed for this policy to actually go through and become a reality?
3: Yeah, well, you know, people have always said Quebec in some ways is more progressive, you know, socially than the rest of Canada. But I think what was happening then in particular, there are a couple of things, and one of them had to do with Quebec separatism. So there was a whole, it was kind of a nation-building kind of program. For one thing, it really provided an opportunity for children to, you know, really just cement French at at an earlier age. And I think the other thing that happened was that, Quebec um, had, a, had a champion in mm. Pauline Marois.
9: Ce n'était pas un luxe que de
10: servir les familles québécoises, que de se préoccuper des enfants et de l'égalité
3: des chances. Which was really important. I mean, she played different roles in the government. At one time, she was the education minister but she was also the finance minister at, at, at another point in there and she was quite influential and she really championed the program she believed in the program and it takes a champion sometimes to actually make you know bring this together
2: right and I, you know i know uh in a little bit we're going to talk about another female finance minister who, that's right uh, may or may not be um the champion that this country needs uh for a national program Okay, so Quebec forges ahead. And and now I want to fast forward a little bit more um, on the national level. In 2004, meanwhile, in Ottawa, um, Jean Chrétien's former finance minister... Liberal now Prime Minister Paul Martin, he says that his government is going to follow through on a promise to introduce a national child care programme
0: and it 's very interesting, but the Bank of Canada would support that most important economic tool is to allow young people to baby get into school ready to learn at the earliest as possible age, let them be in a caring and nurturing atmosphere while it happens
2: and. By this point, of course, as you and I have just talked about, we've heard this a few times. And so what happens with Paul Martin's promise? Does it actually lead to action? Paul
3: Martin became convinced
2: that this program was really worth doing.
3: And they went out and and negotiated uh, bilateral agreements with the different provinces. And they actually negotiated with had formed agreements with everybody but Quebec.
4: Social um, Development Minister Ken Dryden came bearing a gift: five billion
2: dollars over five years to kickstart a national program. It didn't take much
4: prodding for the provinces to agree to accept it. Joanne Crawford is Saskatchewan's Minister of Community Services and Employment.
3: I wouldn't want anyone to underestimate how
4: important this is for parents and children to have to raise raise the bar.
2: Hmm. You know th- this sounds pretty good Martha like uh, at the beginning of this conversation you talked about how optimistic you were when the senior Trudeau launched that task force so comparatively how how optimistic are you in this moment that this is going to happen
3: Oh we were all very optimistic because actually it got to the point that the agreements had been agreed to with the provinces we we thought that was a national childcare program actually and then what happened so there was another federal election <laughs> once again and the Harper conserved by that time the conservatives had become the Harper conservatives and one of the things that they ran on was not doing childcare that way but doing it in a different way by giving parents cash a uh,
0: childcare program that actually happens where people actually in in case of one aspect
1: of our program we create spaces and the other aspect we actually support parents directly i think
3: and they won the election and the actually the first thing they did um, after being sworn in was to cancel the agreements that the previous government had made with the provinces.
2: And and what was their what was their reasoning? You know why did they say that they were going to cancel the agreements and instead give parents cash? I,
3: I've always thought it was a combination of being social conservatives. And fiscal conservatives at the same time. So, I mean, essentially, they gave money to parents for childcare, which included—it was just a check. Parents caring for their own children, and they called childcare institutionalizing children. And they—they they, basically we were all—I um, I don't know how to—we were kind of enemies of the state. Essentially, that was the end of it.
0: When will this government offer Canadian families a real childcare program, not one that arrives through the mailbox? Honourable
6: Minister of Human Resources and Social Development.
2: Speaker, Canada's new government recognizes that different families have different needs. We do not support a one size fits all childcare approach, as the previous government did. We believe that each family should have the choice and access to the choice in childcare that meets their needs. This argument that the the Harper government is making that this this is about you know parents being able to choose what they do when it comes to childcare. Why, why are you opposed to that?
3: It doesn't work, actually because if you think about it this way it's not how you build public institutions like a school or a you know or a healthcare system like a hospital you don't give people money to go out and find somebody to take their appendix mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. what we do is we put our money together Collectively, and we make institutions to provide health care. Right. And if you think about child care as something where people come together, you know, the whole thing of it takes a village to raise a child, that quality early childhood education and care is part of that and is part of the public good. It just doesn't appear if everybody turns up with their little $100 check and right. says, I need my little piece. Right. The other reason to have child care is that it's great for children. And I don't mean that it makes them into better widgets, but it can provide a great life for a three-year-old if you have quality child care.
1: That is part one of yesterday morning's front burner from CBC News. Part two coming up in a moment here on 93.1 CFIS FM's After 9.
6: Hi, I'm Tim the host of the daily feature the On Stage Spotlight, your way of keeping informed about performers and performances happening throughout the Prince George area. I'll be highlighting artists from all musical genres, both local and from around the world. I'll be featuring not only their music, but concert details and interesting insights into the music industry. So join me weekdays at 8.30, 11.30 and 3.30, Saturdays at 9.30 and 12.30, and Sundays at 12.30. That's the Stage Spotlight, only on CFIS FM
10: 93.1. Tonight through Monday, West Coast Chamber Music presents its final concert of the season, Clarinet, Cello, and Piano Trio. Popular West Coast musicians Michelle Anderson, Rebecca Wenham, Holly Duff, and Alan Crane combined forces to perform Brahms' great trio for clarinet, cello, and piano, as well as four pieces for clarinet, cello, and piano by Max Brook. Full details and tickets are available at westcoastchambermusic.com. Clarinet, cello, and piano trios from West Coast Chamber Music Friday through Monday at westcoastchambermusic.com.
1: Join the Alzheimer's Society for the IG Wealth Management Walk for Alzheimer's. Throughout the month of May, the Alzheimer's Society will be raising awareness and funds for people affected by dementia. Take part and then join in virtually on Sunday, May 30th to celebrate the difference you've made. Full details are available at walkforalzheimers.ca. The IG Wealth Management Walk for Alzheimer's, Sunday, May 30th. Who will you walk for? Forecast
10: from Environment Canada. Mainly sunny today. Winds from the northeast at 20 starting near noon and a high of 9. Tonight, a few clouds. Northeast winds becoming light near midnight, a low of minus 7 with a wind chill to minus 12. Mainly sunny on Saturday. Wind from the northeast at 20 in the morning and a high of 8.
0: You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station. 93.1 CFIS-FN.
1: And here is part two of yesterday morning's front burner from CBC News.
2: OK, and so let's fast forward again here, uh, because as a political issue, child care kind of fades into the background for about a decade. And and during the 2015 federal election, the NDP brings it back into the spotlight and they promise $15 a day daycare, Tomal care, right? Um, That's correct.
5: It's invariably women who have to make the toughest choices on their careers. And that's why we will get to quality, affordable, $15 a day child care, one million spaces across Canada.
2: And the Liberals, I remember, they were also promising an expansion of child care, although it's not the big universal plan like the NDP is promising. The Liberals, they win the election. That's right. Um, But let's keep fast-forwarding to 2017, because 2017... Marks 20 years since Quebec first introduced its universal child care program. And a couple of really interesting studies come out at the time, including one by the International Monetary Fund. And some of the numbers in these studies are pretty impressive. Hey, can you tell me what they find? What was really interesting about the International Monetary Fund,
3: it was in the context of Canadian productivity that they do annual reports on. And they had made the observation that Quebec's labor force participation rate of mothers had really been boosted by the Quebec Affordable Childcare Program. And that if Canada did the same thing, the rest of Canada did the same thing, that it would bring in more in terms of productivity than it would cost actually, that it would add to the Canadian economy, and that the labor force
2: participation rate of mothers of young children was really needed mm-hmm. in the Canadian labor force. Right. I mean, you put people into the workforce, you put more people into the workforce, they pay more taxes on the income that they make, those taxes go yeah. to paying for the child care. Um, so so and they spend and,
3: the money locally and all kinds of things like that.
2: Right and you know interesting I know that there was another study by a Canadian economist that found that um the birth rate actually in Quebec had not decreased over the 20 years whereas nationally it had.
3: There is evidence that the birth that having childcare accessible childcare is one thing that ke- allows people to have children and keeps the labor force needs at a higher level. And they did come to that conclusion, yes.
2: So, so I just want to note here, I know that there are criticisms of Quebec's model, and, and we don't have the time to really dig into it here. But but very basically, there have been issues around access and quality, essentially not enough spaces in publicly funded centers, and then lower quality and alternatives the government provides subsidies for. And I know that advocates say that that these issues really need to be addressed. But problems aside here, let's contrast those stats From Quebec, with what's going on with the rest of the country pre pandemic. Because in particular, young moms in the rest of the country, they are not faring as well. Uh, The national average of women in the workforce is about 5% lower than in Quebec. Birth rates in Canada hit a record low in 2019. And meanwhile, daycare costs keep going up. And I want to play you some clips from a few moms. Uh, of course you hear from women who choose to not work because the finances just don't make any sense.
4: For former journalist Amanda eran Shimanovich, the cost of childcare was her career. The child care now is not
5: affordable.
4: She says care for her two youngest children is simply too expensive. $3,000 a month.
5: What I'm able to do now, maybe change diapers and watching kids. And uh, this was not like this before. I was a good professional. And now I feel... That I am stuck. For, for
2: those who are working, it's it's a struggle, um, right? You know, we spoke to Emile Niazzi in Toronto. She actually works on CBC podcast, Pop Chat, and she's been on the show before. And she says that, you know, she's taking work that she doesn't necessarily want to do as a freelancer because child care is, is such a big cost. I don't qualify for um, paid maternity leave with my last baby, which means that... I, In order to make sure that I can do what little work I need to to be able to pay, you know, the the bills uh, of living in Toronto, I have to do much more work than I might have wanted to because, you know, I can't just pay for a little bit of care. I have to, you know, there's no payment plan for daycares, sadly. Um, So... It means it means less time with my baby. And this isn't just in big cities like Toronto. Kate, in rural BC outside Nelson, is a farmer, and she picks up other work in the winter, and she is in the midst of this Byzantine scheduling nightmare trying to piece together her casual work schedule so she can qualify for a bit of provincial aid.
4: Daycare determines my work schedule. So when we first got daycare... Um, the center that we wanted to send our kid to that was close to home. They had two particular days available. And I said, yes. And then those are the days I went to my employer and said, I can work these two days also around the hours that the daycare, um, is available. And so in some ways that like limits, what kind of work I can look for. I had a kind of a variety of jobs. And one of the jobs I did this year was nannying for another family with the baby. Um, which, it was a nice job and it was a different kind of caretaking because it was a baby, but it did really make me wonder about the whole system when I when it made financial sense to me to send my kid to a daycare and look after someone else's kid.
2: And another woman, Bridget in Toronto says that she has to make decisions around how many children to have based on childcare costs, while her friends back in her hometown of Montreal aren't doing the same. So I don't know, the vibe I get is that there is a more relaxed atmosphere in Montreal about having kids in general. I don't know many people in Toronto who have more than two kids in my world. Um, And even that second kid, like it's, there's always kind of a pause point. So and in Montreal, it's convenient. My friend was like, yeah, I have three kids. They're the same daycare. I dropped them all off at the same place. And I'm like, oh, no, that's a nightmare. You can't do that. That's like, you know, you're looking at more than five grand a month.
4: You know, that's just,
2: it's a literal impossibility. And so how familiar are these stories to you?
3: Well, those stories, they're completely familiar. And what they capture is they have to make these really hard choices. And I think that that's what's so outrageous about it is the expectation put on women nowadays is that they should have jobs, you know, like, they've, you know, they've, they've made it. And they're not being, they have not been supported by Canada. And I think that that's one of the things that really outrages all of us who grew up in the childcare movement, you know, move from being young mothers, now to being grandmothers and seeing the same thing played out for our children.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, so, so now let's cut to the pandemic. So if that's the situation, even before the pandemic, a lot has happened that has obviously made the question of universal childcare pretty central to people's lives in a new way because for all kinds of reasons people's kids have been at home. And one of the outcomes of that is what's known as the she session
4: triggered or so-called She's session. Women, women are often bearing the brunt of all of this. The question they're asking is, is there any
2: help on the way? I do think we are going to see ongoing gender divergences in this recovery. You are going to see, and it's not a three month story, it's a several year story. So last month, RBC put out a report saying that nearly 100,000 working age Canadian women have completely left the workforce since the pandemic started. And of course, we heard the finance minister, Krista Freeland, talk about how she believed this was the political window um, recently. This half century of struggle is a testament to the difficulty and complexity of the task. But this time, we're going to do it. This budget is the map and the trailhead. And, you know, we talked earlier about the conditions that were in place in Quebec in 1997, this formula that allowed a universal child care program to actually become a reality. And I wonder what you think about what kind of formula exists now. Well,
3: I really have to agree with the finance minister. The, the pandemic has been a political window for people who didn't really get childcare before. To understand why it was essential, why it was so central to the economy, and also what doesn't work about it. That's what made it a political window. I think it was like a, it's an epiphany. Oh my God. What does this mean if we don't have childcare? Well, I have. I'm going to have to have a Zoom meeting with my three-year-old on my shoulder. You know, mm-hmm. as many people did. So I think that that was the aha moment for politicians um, who may not have believed in childcare before. Is we really need this, and it doesn't work, and we got to do something about it.
2: And, and you know, earlier when you and I were talking about Quebec, we talked about Pauline Marois. And her uh, championing that. And so I wonder, uh, when we're talking about the formula today, what your assessment is of the minister herself?
3: Oh, it's on un- she's, un- I mean, she's put herself on the line on this. And she is a working mother who relied on childcare. Maybe this is why it sometimes takes a woman finance minister. You know, I mean, unfortunately, women still, we could see this in the pandemic, women still bear the main responsibility, but she decided that she was going to make it her issue that's major you can see this in some other countries around the, the world where it has taken a woman in a high position it's been the finance minister one time in norway who did that and if you look at uh, new zealand if you look at a uh, Min, uh, prime minister arden she's also really championed
2: changing how they're doing mm-hmm. child care and so you know I- I can't help but think y- y- you've talked about other moments in history where you have been really optimistic, right? And and so on Monday, uh, we got the announcement that this was going to be $30 billion over five years and $8.3 billion annually thereafter. Here is our goal. Five years from now, parents across the country should have access to high quality early learning and child care for an average of $10 a day. Is this what you wanted to hear from the budget? Is this as far as you've ever seen it go?
3: Oh, we were, the the amount of money, actually, it was bigger than we expected it to be. We were kind of um, dumbfounded. You know what it represents? It represents, this is, we're putting on the table a really serious commitment. You know, all the details aren't laid down. There's a lot of, of pieces that need to be done, but it really, really is, has, um, Stated their intention to really bring in, over time, sustained funding to really put a national child care system in place, a universal child care system. We've never had child care being a central item in the budget for economic reasons before, you know, or at all. You know, there's a lot of work to be done, but people feel that this is it. Hmm. And I know there's all kinds of possible pitfalls. You know, it depends on a lot of things. Right. I, I mean, first of all, they could they could lose the election, right? They could lose the election or they somebody could change their mind or they could have a different leader or, hmm. you know, they, it's all kinds of oh, The provinces could all refuse or, you know, one thing or another. But it just feels like there's an opportunity to make this work. And I think that that's kind of the sentiment in the chakra community um i think people feel wow this is big what we were looking for serious and um you know championed and you know we're going to work to make this work
2: okay martha friendly thank you so much thank you so much Well, that is all for today. Thank you so much for listening to Front Burner. We'll talk to you tomorrow.
1: On 93.1 CFIS-FM in place of Ram and Stag, which was unavailable this week, that is Thursday morning's Front Burner from CBC News. You can also catch Front Burner on the, or listen to it on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. When After 9 returns, it is the Friday panel with Nathan Gita.
6: The Northern Indigenous Arts Council is working with the Diversified Transportation to get local Indigenous artwork on BC Bus North buses.
1: Artist submissions must include a letter of introduction with Indigenous affiliation, your biography and resume, and up to three original artworks or design concepts with a statement for each. More information is available from the Indigenous Arts Council's Facebook page. Submission deadline to have your Indigenous artwork considered for BC Bus North buses is 5pm Friday, May 7th. The Prince George Spruce King's 39th Annual Show Home Lottery is ready for you. Built in the Aberdeen Glen subdivision by Hobson Construction, the 2,600 square foot home comes fully furnished by Theory Hardware with appliances from Andre's Electronics and is valued at $670,000. Tickets are available by phone or online. Online at sprucekingshowhome.ca. Tickets for a final mega 50-50 jackpot are also available. The 39th annual Spruce King Show Home Lottery grand prize draw date is April 30th.
10: The value of one, the power of many. That's the theme for National Volunteer Week 2021. The value of one, the power of many, reflects on the awe-inspiring acts of kindness by millions of individuals and the magic that happens when we work together toward a common purpose. Celebrate the importance of volunteerism across B.C. with the annual National Volunteer Week photo contest. Full details are available through the National Volunteer Week link at volunteerbc.bc.ca. National Volunteer Week, on through Saturday across Canada. The value of one, the power of many.
1: French George Crime Stoppers is now Northern BC Crime Stoppers. Coming off another record year, your local Crime Stoppers organization is geared up to receive tips from across Northern BC anonymously, 24-7, 365 days a year. Call 1-800-222-TIPS or make your submission online at pgcrimestoppers.bc.ca. Don't miss Crime Stoppers' next community shredded event Saturday from 10 to 2 at the PGSS parking lot to dispose of personal documents safely and securely with northern bc crime stoppers
0: keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around prince george this is after nine on 93.1 cfis fm
5: yes good morning of course this is the panel portion that we have on after nine i'm your host nathan Gita, and we are here live with our panelists which include peter ewart Art Betke, Eric Allen, and Herb Martin. We're going to start off with the BC budget, which apparently we actually got written this time around. So there is there is actually a budget now. That's good. Uh, and apparently there's some things in it. Uh, of course, uh, one of those things is $15 million for the Premier's office. No idea what that's going for. But hey, if you want to give me $15 million for my office, I'll take it any time. Uh, to lead us off on this, we'll start as we always do with Herb. Herb, what's in the budget and why does it matter?
9: It includes um, a fairly large uh, increase in the uh, overall debt. In the next three years, Uh, there's going to be another $40 billion uh, uh, debt incurred uh, by BC. Uh, Astonishingly, um, uh, only half of that is uh, from COVID, the other half is from uh, capital projects such as Site C, um, which sort of begs the question. Uh, is there enough scrutiny on Site C? And um, I think the the answer probably is no, there's not. And we should be looking at at, uh, that project um, a lot more closely and see if it actually will pay dividends um, for B.C. in the future.
5: I mean, trusting the expert is is something that we can do any time. I'm sure that it always turns out well and nothing ever goes wrong. Art, should we just trust the experts and believe that the debt will be paid down someday by your (laughs) great-great-grandchildren?
6: Uh, no, I, I would go with uh, past history, uh, what happens to governments that get too far in debt. Uh, I recall back in the 80s, the New Zealand government uh, pretty much melted down when uh, they came up against the debt wall, and, and they ma- managed to resolve it at that time. I don't think we learned that lesson. They learned it. I think they've forgotten again. They're, they're going back into debt, uh, as usual. Uh, there's something about governments where they just love to spend, and uh, at the same time, they love to interfere in the economy and impose their ideological values, and uh, to the detriment of the economy and uh, people's prosperity, it uh, seems to be more of the same. And uh, we're just going to keep borrowing and borrowing until we can't or everything crashes. I think that's going to be the eventual end.
5: Peter, I mean, that does sound like a lot of debt, but I'm, you know, we live in a time of uh, very low interest rates. I'm sure everything will be just fine. What do you think?
7: Uh, Well, I agree. Uh, You know, like, sooner or later, the uh, interest rates go up. And, of course, when that will happen, there will be a catastrophe all over the place because there's so much uh, debt uh, at the government level, but also at... uh, uh, other levels of uh, of government in the corporate sector and and personal debt right so the debt thing is a is a big issue right and uh, uh, in terms of uh resolving it uh, like a lot of uh, you know what 's going on right now like i I'm, I get concerned about when I see all these uh, things about uh, like i'm i'm in support of uh, a greener environment, but uh, a lot of the uh, Proposals that are put forward, and all this is all about uh, you know making the corporations greener and and the the people paying for it, you know. So there's a, there's an issue there. Um, so I you know at the same time in the you know like I think that uh, the provincial budget, one of the things I would have liked to have seen in the provincial budget was uh, a plan for paid sick days. You know, in terms of uh, solving this. Uh, COVID-19 problem. You know that's one of the biggest problems right now. Is that uh, you know people uh, get sick, but then they're stuck, especially in low-wage uh, positions. Uh, they're they're stuck in terms of whether they go into work or uh, whether they stay at home and uh, maybe not pay their rent. And uh, so that's that's an issue. That that was a gap that I saw in the budget that that should be filled
5: that That's not an unfair observation, and I think that there is a place for uh for paid sick days though what that's going to look like exactly, especially for smaller employers is a bit of a debate um Eric you know there's a lot of debt here there's a lot of other items on the budget there's no explanation what's going to happen with uh the icebreakers being built here or the daycare stuff and and dental like there's been some talk about it, but there's nothing really clear there. What do you think about it all?
8: well, you know i mean it's I'm just looking at a thing here where they project a deficit for 2021 20, of 8.1 billion. So, you know, we went from millions, you know, a daily conversation about hundreds of millions. Now we're talking in billions. Just nobody blinks an eye. And, uh, you know, this is not good. I mean, some of the stuff in the budget is, is good. You know, they need money for this pandemic and recovery. And, you know, they got kids under 12 riding free. Well, that's a... That's a non. That doesn't mean anything because the buses are running uh, three quarters empty all the time. Anyway, you put kids in them, it's not going to, uh, to change anything. You know, it's uh, you can. I, I suggest this years ago. You're running these buses empty and let the kids ride free to the uh, swimming pool. And uh, so, I guess maybe they they make some money off the kids, but you know. So anyway, that's in there big investment in mental health, and I think that mental health investment's basically tied in where we look something like what oh, we're going to build on First Avenue, and that's some of that money that's coming to the city and uh, Northern Health and that to build that, and it's an all-inclusive type thing, and the different departments will work together, and mental health will be one of it, and homeless will be another, and uh, drug addiction will be another, and I think we have to do something in that regard. We can't just Walk around people on the sidewalk and pretend they're not there. So, so I think that's good. But the, the overall spending, like somebody mentioned, sightsee. Uh, why in the hell we just carry on and, and driving up the debt, driving up the debt, and I don't know when you'll ever get this money back. Yeah. You know, just it's just incomprehensible. But then they turn around and they give you a, a increase in your gas prices with this carbon tax. Unless I you know my eyes went on the yesterday, I mean I drove by one uh, service station and said gas was dollar forty and I went by the next one said dollar29 Now either one guy' is wrong or the other guy hasn't put his price up yet but with the uh, carbon tax, I think we're you know we're going to pay for that in so many different ways and the grocery store is everything, and maybe the only way to save money is to reduce driving that doesn't help the tourist industry so I don't know at this point.
5: That's fair enough. Um, we uh, we got started a little bit late here, so we're going to take a quick break right now. And we'll come back with the panel in just a moment.
1: The Alzheimer's Society
5: of B.C. is recruiting volunteer committee members for their annual
1: IG Wealth Management Walk for Alzheimer's. This year's walk will take place throughout the month of May, culminating in a virtual celebration on May 30th. If you have the time and are looking for a volunteer role, email volunteer at alzheimerbc.org, call 604-742-4937, or visit the special events volunteer section of the Alzheimer's Society of B.C. website at alzbc.org slash event volunteer.
10: In a year where community organizations are facing uncertainty, the needs are greater than ever to alter programming and amend budgets to accommodate community needs. The Northern Interior Community Association provides support, guidance, and assistance in the community gaming grant application process.
1: The next round of grants are open to all art and cultural not-for-profits, charities, and community groups until April 30th.
10: For assistance, contact the Northern Interior Community Association by email to coordinator at Northern ICA dot org
1: as part of the ongoing collaboration with the BC Tourism Resiliency Network, the Northern BC Tourism Association is connecting tourism stakeholders from the region with a digital expert at no cost. Funded by Western Diversification Canada, the digital expert you're matched with will provide one-on-one support with website management, social media services, business listings, and potential e-commerce solutions. For more information or to apply, click on the Northern BC Tourism Resiliency Program logo at NBC.
10: Forecast from Environment Canada, mainly sunny today, winds from the northeast at 20 starting near noon and a high of 9. Tonight, a few clouds, northeast winds becoming light near midnight, a low of minus 7 with a wind chill to minus 12. Mainly sunny on Saturday, winds from the northeast at 20 in the morning and a high of 8.
0: It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM.
5: Yes, good morning. Of course, this is the panel portion that we have on After 9. I'm your host, Nathan Gita, and I'm joined by the panel. Well, we're going to pivot a little bit here. We'll get back to the budget eventually, I'm sure. But uh, the other big news item here locally in BC is that, of course, we've got, well travel restrictions internal travel restrictions now some of us might think that we have a fundamental freedom to movement inside of our own country inside of our own province inside of our own region but apparently uh, our provincial authorities beg to different uh, obviously there's certain reasons for this but nonetheless uh, the, the question of legality as well as effectiveness is going to be brought up and also that classic problem who decides what is essential and not essential we'll start with herb herb what's going on and why does it matter
9: well, uh, basically, travel is the number one source of uh, COVID infections. So, I mean, if you can reduce it, um, it's going to be beneficial to us. Uh, looks like BC now has four um, variants at play. Uh, the, the local, the latest one is the, the one from India and Pakistan. So, yes, I mean, it, you know, the travel restrictions are sensible. Um, uh, I think it's at this point. Um, not so much a legal obligation as, uh, as, a, as a strong suggestion, and um, I don't think anyone's actually doing any enforce- enforcement of it. So, um, it, so far, it's pretty much just a request, and hopefully people uh, oblige.
5: Art, the uh, the weather's getting pretty nice out there, even here in northern British Columbia. Uh, what what are people going to do? I mean, people probably want to get outside. They want to go camping and stuff. They're also going to feel, I think, a little offended if they're going to get stopped on the way to a campground, given that they're pretty socially distanced outside. What, what's your take on it?
6: Well, I don't think there's any restriction on them going camping. Uh, uh, as, as I understand it, you're just supposed to stay within your own health region, and uh, very few people go outside their own health region to go camping. Uh, going outside is a great idea. Like last Saturday was just gorgeous. I was out there in the sun in a t-shirt and got a sunburn. And the one thing that did is it gave me vitamin D, which is a good protection and defense against viruses, including the COVID viruses and all the variants. So, uh, yeah, if it's too cold, like this Saturday, is supposed to be pretty cold. So instead, you know, just take vitamin D supplements, I don't think it's too much of a restriction traveling, but I still would like to be able to do it if if I wanted to go somewhere. Uh, I don't think it's going to have much effect. Uh, the, the essential travel is still going to happen, and if the variants are there, it's still going to spread throughout the whole population until we all get the herd immunity one way or another. So I, I don't think it's uh, it, it should be actually restricted like that.
5: Peter, I mean, we've all become uh, armchair epidemiologists over the last 15 months. What what does any of it really mean? Is a is a hard question. And what's the correct uh, policy prescription for these things? With with the travel restrictions, not unlike the church worship restrictions, which are ongoing, uh, do you not think that there might be a challenge to the courts and someone would have a leg to stand on here?
7: Uh, yes, I think that's entirely possible. Like uh, you know, because. Uh I think what's happened in both BC and Ontario is that uh, this uh, this whole measure, measure uh, of stopping people and uh, from going outside their health district and so on uh, uh, was not thought through properly by the government, like to the point that Ford, uh, I think it was yesterday, he apologized, uh, you know, for uh, bringing in the measures like that where police could stop people in the streets and 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 also banning people from going to playgrounds, which is just crazy in BC here. Uh, my concern about this is that we really have to be careful about uh, creating, uh, you know, a sort of a policing situation. Even the um, National Police Federation has a lot of concerns about, uh, you know, this uh, provincial policy of uh, road blocking and so on. Right in the sense that it puts pressure, greater pressure on the police and increased risk and 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 so on. Right, you know, like they have to deal with people who get upset about this kind of thing. So I think that. Uh, uh, in terms of both uh, the, the church issue and uh, you know the uh, people leaving their uh, health district and so on, uh, that uh, we have to do it very lightly and be be careful about creating a police a policing situation, which I think should be avoided as much as possible.
5: Eric I'm old enough to remember uh I think I'm the youngest one here but I'm still old enough to remember Eric that uh some time ago in in the land of the beginning of covid uh, cops were purposely not pulling over people. They had an internal memo that said, unless it's a violent crime, you let them go. It was a wonderful time to be alive. I could drive on the highway and actually use my V8 in my truck. Uh, I didn't have to worry about just cops popping up out of nowhere. It was really nice. It was, it was a, it was a beautiful dream. Uh, and now we're being told that cops should pull everybody over to see whether or not they are sick. Uh, what do you think about that? Do you think that yeah. makes sense? No,
8: it's uh, you know there's some confusion in that provinces are uh, responsible for policing. Federal government is responsible for a lot of the uh, laws, like the War Measures Act and uh, the Riot Act, and probably there's some laws there on epidemics and pandemics that we we're not aware of what the uh, you know what the law actually says. At least I haven't had a chance to look it up yet. So you know, so so you have this sort of broad brush approach and say you can't travel outside your uh, uh, health area. Well, for north-central British Columbia, that's bigger than half the countries in Europe. So that's kind of, uh, and we wouldn't go to most of those places anyway. So uh, I think that's a broad brush approach so that they can focus on border points and and places they want to focus on. They're they're not going to be up in uh, Highway 37 or something checking in between uh, you know, two borders up there, something very little. It's it's to uh, target certain areas and then just not saying that. But if we go back to the uh, years ago with the impaired driving legislation and then the roadblocks where they could stop us all on a roadblock and check, uh, that went to the Supreme Court, and the court ruled that the, the RCMP could do that with, you know, and a few reasons why they could do it. I never, ever thought that that was correct, and I don't think it should have ever been passed. Uh, because up until then, you know, you had to have a reason to stop somebody and suspect that they committed a crime or something. This is something the same. You know, To get it in and eventually they might say, well, you know, we can do this all the time. Well, you can't and you shouldn't be. And I agree with the police that are saying we're not going to do it.
5: Well, we're going to take a short break right there and we'll come back with the panel for the last portion we have and uh, talk about the vaccine rollout. Individuals who experienced sexual misconduct as a
1: member of the Canadian Armed Forces or as an employee of the Department of National Defense may qualify for financial compensation and participate in a restorative engagement program. Staff of the non-public funds Canadian Forces may also be eligible. Claims for financial compensation and the restorative engagement program must be filed by November 24th. Be heard. To file a claim, visit CAF-DND Sexual Misconduct Class Action The city of Prince George is releasing its
10: annual lists of roads and sidewalks slated for resurfacing and rehabilitation during the upcoming paving season. This year, the city will resurface about 43 lane kilometers of road. The city is also rehabilitating about 1.3 K of sidewalk. In total, there will be 38 projects for road resurfacing and five for sidewalks this year. More information, including maps showing this year's road and sidewalk projects, are available through the News and
1: Notices link at princegeorge.ca. The Vantage Point's Youth Leadership is presenting a free mix-and-mingle Zoom meeting on Thursday, May 6th. Not-for-profit professionals aged 18 to 35 are invited to take part in the discussion on the value of joining a board. Joining a board can be an incredibly enriching experience and is a great way to bolster your resume. Find out more during the free Zoom meeting. The value of joining a board, Thursday, May 6th from 4 to 5.30. Full details and registration are available through the vantagepoint.ca.
10: Tonight through Monday, West Coast Chamber Music presents its final concert of the season, Clarinet, Cello, and Piano Trio. Popular West Coast musicians Michelle Anderson, Rebecca Wenham, Holly Duff, and Alan Crane combined forces to perform Brahms' great trio for clarinet, cello, and piano, as well as four pieces for clarinet, cello, and piano by Max Brook. Full details and tickets are available at westcoastchambermusic.com clarinet cello and piano trios from west coast chamber music friday through monday at westcoastchambermusic.com
0: featuring the people who make things happen and prince george you're listening to after nine on 93.1 cfis fm
5: yes of course we're back with the panel portion we have here on fridays we're into our last portion of the panel and we always try to get to local issues but one of the local ongoing issues is of course the vaccine rollout uh, for numbers on that and how things are going uh, and whether or not uh, we're on schedule or when uh, herd immunity will be uh, achieved, we're going to go to Herb Barton. Herb,
9: uh, well, overall, um, Canada's got a 27 percent um, uh, one dose vaccination rate anyway, uh, which is uh, it's not it's not terrible. It's uh, better than most of Europe, and uh, we're we're getting closer to the Americans. Um, an interesting uh, side note is that um, uh, Trump's shadow is still uh, still on the scene. Uh, with uh, the um, but about uh, two thirds of the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine produced at um, uh, Emergent Biosolutions in the states, which is uh, t- uh, traded tra- 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 on its relationship with a key Trump administrative official to win federal contracts, and subsequently. Um, uh, screwed up the production of uh, 15 million doses of the johnson and johnson vaccine and is now suspected of um, uh, screwing up the astrazeneca production as well so yeah overall uh, things are are, are going uh, not too badly but it, it could have been better
5: art i mean uh the vaccines rolling along but uh, something that was actually mentioned the other day by uh, my compadre aaron ekman was that he didn't really actually know where where one was supposed to get it? Uh, he's seen a lot of stuff about please get the vaccine, and then when you know if you want to get it, it uh, was it was kind of uh, it didn't really seem to show you where, uh, given your age or demographic. I bumped into it when I was looking up the travel restrictions, and because I'm I am a person who's a status Indian, supposedly I can get it before other people, but also thanks to my age, I'm in the same category as everybody else. Thirty year olds can get it. What does the government need to communicate this more clearly? Maybe where the where the vaccine can be got.
6: Oh, I haven't been paying much attention since I've already had it. I don't need the vaccine, so uh, I really don't know. Um, I did uh, see people uh, going to the civic center uh, and, and getting the vaccine, and they had the signs up there. So it seems to me that uh, uh, it was, you know, people did know where to go. It was a pretty steady stream of people going in and out. Uh, this was a while ago, and they were the elderly. So, uh, it seems to me, it, uh, if you want to know, it's easy enough to find out where to go.
5: Yeah, I suppose so. I guess I thought I was going to get something in the mail like this, you know, like the, the when they do the census or something. In any case, uh, Peter, you know... W- the the vaccines rolling along here i've heard everything from it's the greatest thing that man's ever created to it's extremely dangerous uh some of that might be fake news some of it might be fake news the other way too what 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 are people supposed to think about the vaccine and and when when do they think that they're going to get it and does everybody need to have it
7: uh well you know i, I i'm a supporter of the vaccines i think uh, that uh, history shows that uh, they can be effective and uh from everything that i've seen so far Uh, it's a good idea to get uh, the vaccine and uh, possibly vaccines in the future. You know, it's a a form of health technology that uh, has proven itself in terms of uh, other illnesses such as polio and smallpox and and so on. Uh, That's not to say that there can't be problems with it. Uh, Of course, there can be. uh, But uh, overall, my my take on that is that uh, uh, people should partake of it, uh, and we have to work together to defeat this uh, illness, right? Uh, you know, it, it's there could be uh, waves in the future. I think the other thing that comes out of this uh, that this pandemic has shown is that uh, we really need to uh, beef up the healthcare sector. You know, the pandemic has exposed a whole bunch of holes in that sector, and uh, uh, you know, the personnel there are working very hard i've had a, i've had the vaccine already and i thought it was very well organized locally here um but um the the personnel they the personnel and the institutions they need uh, they need assistance they need help to be able to deal with this now and in the future
5: eric uh, we've got a few seconds left here i'll give you the last word what do we need to, what do we need to think about when it comes to the vaccine and, and are we moving fast enough what's what's happening here
8: well, I you know, I think we we went into this blind. We didn't know what it was about, and people were trying all sorts of things. But I just looked at a headline today, and it says, uh, One dose of AstraZeneca or Pfizer vaccine provides protection against COVID-19 that lasts at least 10 weeks, study finds. And that's if you just get that uh, one shot, which is only a partial shot, and then you get your second shot later on. I think if you get a full shot, you're probably good for... Uh, you know, maybe 20 weeks or something. So it's starting to look like we're probably going to have to get booster shots uh, two maybe two times a year or something with this thing. So I really don't know. It, just, it changes uh, every couple of weeks.
5: It does change every couple of weeks. But with that, we have to wait till next week. Thank you so much for tuning in, and uh, the panel will be back next Friday.
0: After Nine is a daily presentation of CFISFM. After Nine is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita, with guest producer Neil Godbu of the Prince George Citizen. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca.
6: You're tuned to 93.1 CFISFM, Prince George. Proudly sponsored by community organizations like the Prince
4: George Symphony Orchestra.